Turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9. So, Acts chapter 9. We are going to uh, read the first 25 verses. We're not going through the whole chapter today because there's just plenty of material here for us to consider as we are looking at um, the life of Saul as he meets Jesus. So it begins here in chapter 9, verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests, excuse me, to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once and arose, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. 
Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word, and we trust that you will speak to us and minister to us this morning as we open our hearts and minds to all that you might have for us as we consider this amazing story of how you met Saul on this road. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been following this story here, going through the book of Acts, we first encountered this man Saul at the end of chapter 7. He was there uh, heartily consenting to the death and the stoning of Stephen. He was there holding the coats of those who were throwing the rocks so that they might you know, be able to wind up better and get a good throw as they were throwing those rocks at Stephen. And then last week we saw, as we were looking at chapter 8, how Saul was just filled with rage and we looked at how he, uh, the, the words there were describing that of a wild boar or a vicious animal just tearing into its prey, just a, a bloodlust. And that's how out of his mind with with anger and just rage he had toward the the believers, toward Christians, and and particularly toward Jewish Christians. And so here we find him again. This time he's on the road. This this rage is driving him. And notice it says there in verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So he is still filled with rage, and he's now taking it further, taking it to the next level. Went and asked them to give him letters from Jerusalem, which was certainly the headquarters of everything Jewish and certainly of their faith, of their religion. And they granted those letters to him. And it says in verse 2, asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found uh, any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so we know that he was going into homes. We looked at this last time and he was uh, you know, taking people, arresting them on authority of the high priest and taking them before the, uh, the Sanhedrin and basically putting them on trial. And it was a tribunal of sorts as he brought people in. And the word spread that, that this man, Saul, was really carrying out the will of the Sanhedrin and the council. And so he was taking them, it says, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And in the last chapter, again, we saw that he was even considering children. Now, Damascus was about 130 or so miles away, roughly a six-day journey on foot. And it was a foremost city of that region out from Jerusalem, sort of to the north and and west of the city, up in what is modern-day Syria. And so... Paul, or rather Saul, we should say, he's not called Paul till chapter 13. Saul gets on the road, and as he's heading up, and notice it said there in verse 2, who were of the way, this phrase, the way, is used five times in the book of Acts to refer to the followers of Jesus, and a little later on, uh, the followers of Jesus will be called Christians for the first time, and The term Christian, when we get there, was actually just the term little Christ, and it was uh, usually a very derogatory term. It was not a complimentary term at all, but it is a term that has stuck with us to this very day. You might wonder, why did they call Christianity or the believers or the disciples of Jesus the way? And the only connection I think that we can find is out of John 14, 6, where Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, If it came from somewhere else, uh, no one seems to know, to be aware of that, but it does seem likely that it came from Jesus himself, them taking his words, and then applying it to those who were the disciples who were following him. So as he journeyed, verse 3, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So in that moment, Saul, for the first time, encounters God in a way that he never has before. And the audible voice from heaven speaking directly to him is the voice of Jesus. And notice the interest that Jesus takes as Saul is, is persecuting Christians, right? He's persecuting disciples. But Jesus says, not why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Going all the way back to uh, the Beatitudes, and Jesus said a number of times throughout his ministry, uh, don't worry when they're persecuting you. Don't take it personally. They're actually persecuting me because it's me they hate. And it's me in you that they see that they hate. So Jesus confirms here, he says, why are you persecuting me? A good thing for us to remember, right? Whenever we receive any kind of slander or persecution or disapproval or whatever it might be, remember, they're not persecuting you. They're persecuting Jesus in you. Because what they see in you is Christ, the hope of glory. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus. That had to ring through his body like a just a shiver. Because he had been persecuting Jesus' disciples. And likely, uh, as we understand uh, this man, Saul, he had been brought up through the school of Gamaliel, who was one of the foremost uh, members of the Sanhedrin of that time. And this Jesus was probably someone that Saul had come in contact with. Uh, Many believe he was on the Sanhedrin as a member at that point in time. Whether he was or wasn't, uh, we don't have fully confirmed. But he likely was. And so he likely has had run-ins with Jesus before. He likely had been one of those Pharisees off to the side, listening with his hands sort of in his robe and just listening with that critical spirit and picking out all the things that he felt were wrong with what Jesus was saying. So for him to hear those words from heaven, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, that had to be earth shattering to him. And notice he said here, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I want to take just a moment and do a little divergence here. If you have a translation Other than the King James, New King James, you'll find that phrase is not in here, the phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that's because there are two main branches of manuscripts. There's one branch called the majority text or the Textus Receptus. And if you read in the front of your your Bible, especially your King James or New King James Bible, it tells you all about that and where it came from. There's another set of manuscripts called Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus. It's these two groups of manuscripts that we get our modern-day Bibles. So so that you understand 
this. There are differences in groups of texts and manuscripts, and when you get into all of these things, it's called textual criticism, and I don't recommend it. I know many people who have had lost their faith over reading this kind of material. Um, but the point of it is that this one branch, the Textus Receptus Majority text, seems to be more inclusive and have more information in it than the uh, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus. So the King James, New King James, comes from this majority text branch. All other translations, New American Standard, ESV, NIV, Holman Christian Standard Bible, anything else, New Living Translation, they all come from this other set of texts. The important thing to note is there are these uh, mostly deletions in the other set of texts. That, like, so you won't find in those other translations, uh, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I think personally, um, this is just my opinion, I think it, it significantly changes the meaning because if it stops with, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and then it just goes on, you miss the fact of what Jesus says here to Saul. He says, it's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goads. What is a goad? The goad was a sharp, pointy stick, several feet long, that a farmer would use to literally goad an animal that was not moving or doing what he wanted it to do, particularly oxen as they were used for plowing or whatever it might be. And, you know, poking them in the hide wasn't going to get them to move because their hides were so thick. And it was usually used in the back of their legs, mostly around their Achilles down low. And they would reach out with that stick and poke them to make them move. You can imagine that would be a very painful and irritating process. So what Jesus is expressing here is that Saul, for some period of time, has been kicking against the goads. And those goads were in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus himself goading Paul, prodding him, prompting him. And you might say, well, how did Jesus do that? Well, remember, Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen. Saul was likely there and had interactions with Jesus. But as we think about um, the stoning of Stephen back in Acts chapter 7, I just want to read a little portion to you because remember, Saul was there. Acts 7.54, when they heard these things, as Stephen was preaching, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If, if Saul heard that, and I'm sure he did, that had to be a goad to him. Because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And here, Stephen is speaking these words. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen, excuse me, as they stoned Stephen, he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he said, as he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I think those were goads in the side of Saul. And so Saul there being confronted by Jesus sometime around noon, the noonday sun <clears throat> being very bright, 
but we're understanding here, and when we, we read the other accounts that, that uh, Saul, then Paul, gives later in Acts 22 and Acts 26, where he recounts this, he adds other details. And so we understand that he saw a light brighter than the noonday sun as he relates this to us. I can't imagine that. But God had a way in that moment to manifest himself to Saul. The others heard a noise. They heard a voice. Uh, and, and as you read the other accounts later, it, it said, that, hey, well, they didn't understand what was saying, what was being said. But here Saul is hearing the Lord speaking directly to him with this light so bright. And you can imagine he closed his eyes because the light was so bright. You just couldn't, he couldn't open his eyes. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Good question. Who are you, Lord? Every person, when they are wrestling with Jesus, they have to come to the place where they say, who are you, Lord, don't they? We all have had to do that ourselves if you believe in Christ today. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Interesting that Saul was a rabbi, and I want to read this little quote to you to help you understand the context of what Saul was likely hearing. Uh, According to one commentator, the rabbis of Saul's day mostly believed that God no longer spoke to man directly, as he did in the days of the prophets. However, they believed that one could hear the, quote, echo of God's voice, what they called the daughter of the voice of God, sort of a derivative And here, Saul learned that one can hear God directly. So as he heard the voice of God from heaven in the form of Jesus Christ, saying, who are you, Lord? Isn't it interesting that Jesus, as he spoke to Saul, and he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, that was a statement of compassion. That was a statement of concern. You can almost hear it in the the sense of, How long are you going to resist? How long are you going to have a hard heart? How long are you going to resist what I have been giving you, which is a pointer to me? I've been showing you who I am. I've been speaking to you in the voice of love. I spoke to you through the voice of Stephen. I spoke to you through my own voice while I was there on the earth. Lord, what do you want me to do? Verse 6. He was trembling and astonished. Again, A good question. Lord, who are you? Lord, what do you want me to do? Then let me just suggest to you this morning as we move along here that this is a question we all should be asking the Lord Jesus ourselves. Lord, what do you want me to do? We all should be asking that question because we belong to him. He has redeemed us. And God is proving once again here in this passage Remember, Saul is on this trip. He's on this mission. And what happens? He's, in a sense, minding his own business, doing his own thing. And God reaches down from heaven and speaks to him. Remember, God is the initiator. Man is the responder. God always initiates. And so Jesus speaks to Saul. And I'm grateful that he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So it's interesting. We aren't told at what point in the journey they were, but someone had to lead him into the city. 
when Saul asked this question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Understand, this is a question, and here's a word you don't often hear, so um, you can write it down for your vocabulary expansion. Capitulation. Surrender. Capitulation is what happens. You might have seen it before. If, if two dogs come and they start to sort of check each other out, and there's always one who's alpha, and eventually as they sort of you know, spar a little bit, one rolls on its back with its legs up, that's called capitulation. And that's what Saul is doing here. It's capitulation, it's surrender. And it's a question that few of us dare to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? But yet this is the question that the surrendered heart asks Jesus. Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Up till now, Saul was the one giving the orders. Now he's saying, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice and seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, but when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. We know he was blind. Now, as Saul was living his life and as he was going to persecute these Christians, we know that he was spiritually blind, wasn't he? And yet in that moment, as Jesus revealed himself in, in, a, in glory, in light unapproachable, as Saul was there, he saw for the first time who Jesus was, even as he stood up blind. And so Saul now going into the city at the word of Jesus, and you will be told there what you must do. This had to be a very humiliating process for Saul. But notice here, the Lord didn't give him all the information, right? And this is the way God works with us. He says, here's the next step, Saul. Arise, go into the city, and you will be told there what you must do. This is the way God works. He doesn't give us the whole plan. I know that's what you want. It's what I want. But that's not how he operates. In fact, as I think about all of the stories in the Bible, the Old Testament, and the ways God has worked with man, rarely can I think of a time where God said, look, here's the 10-year plan, every step for the next 10 years. Never. When he started with Abraham, what did he say? Get out from here and go to a place that I will show you. Where, Lord? Just go, I'll direct you. As we go through the life of Saul when he becomes Paul, we're going to see the same thing. God directs him on his path. God directs our paths. We are not in charge. He is, one step at a time. So it is with us. One person said this, looking at this situation of Saul meeting Jesus. He says, have have we been brought to the end of our resources Have we ever been completely helpless until the Lord intervened? Have we ever given up and given in to Christ? Our Damascus roads are generally less dramatic than Saul's, but they are meant to have the same effect. To break our compulsive independence and arrogance and to bring us to Christ for salvation, our Damascus roads are meant to convey our emptiness and the greatness of Christ. Have we gotten the message, have we reached the end? Saul had been brought to the end of his rope. And it says in verse 9, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. No doubt he had to sit and think, 
What is all of this? Gamaliel, who was Saul's uh, mentor through Hebrew school, through uh, raising him up to become a member of the Sanhedrin, it's reported that he wrote in his journal that this man Saul, he, it, it was written this way, I could not keep him in books, meaning he was a voracious reader. He consumed material. He was one of these people who just couldn't get enough. And God here was choosing a man who had been the most voracious opponent of Christianity in the first century, the most active opponent, and spoke to him and converted him. And somewhere in that transaction of those red letters you see there, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Somewhere in that process, Saul surrendered and he gave his heart to Christ and he became a believer. We aren't told that he prayed a prayer, that he invited Jesus into his heart or any of those things, but we know that he believed. You see, those things aren't in the Bible. Are the, the way you must receive Jesus is you must pray a prayer. That's, that's never in there. It's just we believe and we receive. So now we sort of switch tracks in the story in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now, Saul was surprised that God spoke to him. Ananias here seems kind of casual. He's a disciple of Jesus. He must have been hearing the voice of the Lord speaking to him. Ananias, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. Something I'm sure for the very first time Saul had done. He said, what do you mean? He was studying to be a rabbi. Their prayers, like so many prayers in many different religions or faiths, were canned. Their prayers were memorized. Their prayers were sort of coldly recited, with no heart, with no understanding, with no revelation. And so when the Lord here speaking to this man, Ananias, says, for behold, he is praying, I imagine he was as he sat there in silence for three days, fasting, praying, seeking the Lord. And he goes on and he says in verse 12, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Ananias is hearing for the first time, wait a minute, Lord, you told him about me, but he came here to find believers to persecute them. I really am not at all approving of this that you revealed my name to him, Lord. Notice that Ananias was an ordinary man. He's not a prophet. He's not an evangelist. He's not an apostle. He's not an elder. He's not a deacon. And yet God spoke to him. God used him. What do we learn from that? Because that God wants to use ordinary, unscripted people off to the side, minding their own business, just wanting to follow the Lord. This man, Ananias, was just sitting there and the Lord speaks to him. And he gives him this instruction. And he says, he's my man. I've revealed myself to him. And I want you to go to him, lay your hands on him, heal him. And that he might receive his sight. And also we're told as we go through here also that he might receive the Holy Spirit. 
You know, we were talking earlier about how God speaks to us. With Saul, he said, just get up, go into the city, and just wait there for further instruction. In this particular situation, as God spoke to Ananias, notice that there are several things that God specifically gave him. A specific street, the street called Straight. A specific house, the house of Judas. A specific man, Saul of Tarsus. The specific thing the man was doing, he was praying. And the specific vision the man had, because in a vision he saw a man named Ananias coming to him. So God revealed these specific things to Ananias. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I can imagine I would be concerned, you would too. That guy? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Boy, that's not a prosperity, health, wealth, word of faith message, is it? I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. But this was the Lord's mission. He said, he is a chosen vessel of mine. Now, certainly the scriptures tell us in many places, I think of Ephesians 1 as being one of the foremost, that you and I are a chosen vessel belonging to him. You and I are called by name. Our names are written in the book of life. We are chosen vessels just like Saul was. And he says in this case to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. God had a very specific plan for him, and the rest of the book of Acts and the epistles will bear that out for Saul, who will later become Paul. But in a like manner, in a similar way for you and I, so are we. We are to bear his name before the world around us. Alan Redpath, uh, who has written many books, and if you can ever get a your hands on a book of his, you should read it. Alan Redpath once said, when God wants to do an impossible task, God takes an impossible man and crushes him. And that's what happened to Saul. God will bring these things about. He will take a person. And Saul was that impossible person, wasn't he? When you look at him through your regular eyes and you saw Saul, what, what did you think? This guy will never get saved. He'll never surrender. He'll never bend. But yet, the conversion of Saul proves to us that Jesus can and will do anything necessary to reach a soul. So don't give up hope. For those people that you're praying for, if God can reach Saul, God can reach anyone. There is no one beyond the reaches of his grace. We know that Saul later, who became Paul, wrote these words, and I'd like to read them to you, about this idea of what happened through his conversion. Because later as Saul, Paul the Apostle, wrote about these things, he was looking back to this experience. In Philippians chapter 3, he said, 
Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's Paul looking back. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, now remember the Lord said, I will show him how many things he must suffer. 2 Corinthians 11, he says this beginning in verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Listen, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 40 were considered to be lethal. 39 was considered to be grace in their eyes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, which is my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? This is the man, looking back, who is experiencing those many things he must suffer for the name of Christ and now writing about it that we might know that what God said, what God spoke in that word to Ananias, as Ananias came to give it to Paul or Saul at that point, that all came true. Within a course of 30 years, it all came true in Saul's life. And in verse 17 of chapter 9, Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, They didn't say that in the Sanhedrin. They didn't say that in synagogue. This calling each other brother and sister, that's a unique New Testament disciple of Jesus kind of a thing. That was a term of endearment. And for the very first time, his very first encounter, Saul's very first encounter with a disciple of Jesus was a term of endearment. As he came, he put his hands on his shoulders, no no doubt, and said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road. Now, how did he know Jesus appeared to him on the road? Because Jesus told him in the vision. He wasn't out there. He didn't see it. He didn't witness it. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, And he arose and was baptized. I find it so encouraging that as Saul rose up, remember he had already been fasting for three days, 
the first thing he did was not say, hey, uh, I need something to eat. The first thing he did was to say, I want to be baptized. And so here we have Saul being encouraged, being lifted up by this disciple Ananias. And when Ananias walks out of that door, we never hear from him again. He's a very inconspicuous disciple, yet God used him greatly, did he not? To bring these words to Saul of Tarsus, to bring healing through his hands, to bring the filling of the Spirit to Saul of Tarsus. And when it says, and he arose and was baptized, it doesn't say there that he was baptized by Ananias, but I would sort of believe that he was the guy who did it. Wouldn't it be interesting to say, uh, how many people have you baptized in your life? Well, just one. Who was it? Well, the Apostle Paul. That would be pretty cool, huh? So when he was strengthened, excuse me, when he had received food, verse 19, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, these are the people he went to persecute. These are the people he was going to attack. He was going to drag them six days journey on a dusty road back to Jerusalem to put them before the tribunal. Now here he is spending time with the disciples. Immediately, verse 20, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. I mean, the Lord's already revealed himself to him. All of the amazing learning that Saul had been through, through the Sanhedrin, now it all, it all makes sense. It's all come together. The dots have been connected The light has shone. He understands the scriptures speak of Jesus. Isaiah 53, it speaks of Jesus. So immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength And confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So in verse 19, we are told that when he had received food, he was strengthened. But in verse 22, we are told, but Saul increased all the more in strength. These are two different kinds of strength. In fact, they are two different words that are used. The first word in verse 19 speaks of that physical strength. That we've all experienced when you feel hunger, maybe your blood sugar's a little low, you haven't eaten in a while, and you eat that food, and then you feel that strengthening in your body. So there's that physical strength. But notice in verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. Obviously, he is not speaking of eating food here. He is speaking of a spiritual strength, something that comes from God's word. It comes from communion and fellowship with Jesus. And he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So this second strength is a spiritual strength. And the word here means to be empowered, to be enabled, to be given vigor, along with the idea of of more and more. And notice it says there, increased all the more in strength. So there's an idea here that as he took steps of faith, as he served the Lord... The Lord gave him strength. The Lord gave him spiritual strength. And this is a great verse to underline and highlight for how faith works. 
faith works as we exercise it. As we take steps of faith for the Lord, as we, we do things in obedience to the Lord. So Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. The word confounded there means to throw into disorder, to perplex the mind, to bewilder. The word proving means to cause through persuasion and teaching to come together to the same conclusion or to to unite. So Saul already being given this spiritual gift, the ability to persuade, to speak in such a way as to, to bring men to a conclusion. It's an amazing spiritual gift that God has given Saul. How do we grow in spiritual strength? The word, prayer, spiritual exercise of our faith, obedience. It's really the same way that we grow in faith. It's Romans 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, we need that constant diet of the word of God. Our spiritual food is the Word of God. That gives us strength. And if you're feeling weak and anemic this morning and you can evaluate your life and say, I haven't been reading the Word, well, now you know why. Because you have not been feeding on the food that God has given us to feed upon. But there's also, as is expressed in James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word... And not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, God's word, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. This is what was happening in Saul's life. He's taking steps to serve the Lord. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So remember, Saul came with letters. He came there under authority of the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem. He came there to find those Jewish believers who had desecrated themselves by pronouncing that they believed in Jesus and professing that they were following him. But now these Jews realize that Saul has been turned He's become a turncoat. He himself has become a traitor. And they know who he is. And so they determined the only way to deal with this is to kill him. So they plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. In other words, they were waiting for an opportunity for him to pass through the gates one way or another. And when they saw him, they were going to execute him. It was going to be a hit. Verse 25, then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. It just so happened, by coincidence, that God had a believer who lived on the wall in the city and had a a window and had a basket and a rope and could let Saul down through the wall at night. In fact, later, Saul, Paul the Apostle, recounts this in Acts, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 32, he says, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes 
with the garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And we know that when this happened because of the mention of the king and all, that this was probably around AD 38 or 39. So we're now, you know, a number of years, six, seven years at least down the road from when Christ had been resurrected. So now we have Saul escaping the city of Damascus. And right here, between verses 25 and 26, and this is where we'll end today at verse 25, we have a period of at least three years break between these two verses, verse 25 and 26. And you say, how do you know that? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, and I'll read this to you, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, but I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed himself to Saul. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, Acts chapter 9, who separated me from my mother's womb, now he's getting perspective, and called me through his grace on that Damascus road to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, because the next verse says he went to Jerusalem. So this is the break. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, And remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So what happened between verses 25 and 26? Probably sometime a little greater than three years. Saul went out to the Arabian desert. And from what we can tell from his other writings, these were three years that Jesus himself discipled Paul. And remember one of the requirements for an apostle was that he must have spent time with Jesus. Well, see, Jesus had died and resurrected and ascended. How would that be accomplished? You see, God has a way of accomplishing his purposes, doesn't he? No problem. I'll just take Saul out to the desert, spend three years with him out there, schooling him myself, and then I will set him in a position of being an apostle. So God had his plan. God had his method. We'll end with this. uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 13 Paul writes these words, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern 
to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You see, Saul, who became Paul, his life was forever changed that day at noon when a light brighter than the the, the noonday sun shone down and he fell to the ground and he heard those words of Jesus. And when Jesus spoke to him, he received, he believed. And thus begins the life of Saul of Tarsus who becomes the Apostle Paul. If God can save Saul, he can save anybody. Amen. Lord, we thank you this morning for this incredible meeting between you and Saul of Tarsus. And Lord, it gives us hope. It gives us purpose to understand that so it can be with us, so it can be with anyone, Lord, that we're praying for, that we're hoping for, who has not believed, who has not yet trusted you. And Lord, we want to see that there are many this morning, and I'm sure we are lifting up their names right now under our breath as we just speak to you and we say, Lord, would you please save this person? So Lord, would you hear those prayers and would you do it this morning? Lord, you are faithful. As I mentioned earlier for my friend Anthony, a project eight plus years in the making. Lord, would you do that? As we think about family members, husbands, wives, children, prodigals, friends, relatives. Lord, would you hear those prayers? And Lord, we love you this morning. And for any here who may be listening or just wondering, what is this all about? What have I walked into this morning? I pray that you would minister to them right now, that they would believe and receive, that they would bend their knee and give their heart to you, that they would repent and turn and walk in that new direction rather than walking against you, that they would begin to walk with you, just as Saul was learning to do here in our story. Lord, save them. And so for any this morning, Lord, who are hearing this, I pray that this would become their moment, that they would give their heart to you, that they would believe and turn to Jesus. Lord, it's easy for us to say here, but when we go out there, This seems more difficult and more challenging. Lord, may it not be so. Lord, give us that strength that we read about that you gave Saul. Strengthen us, build us up in our faith, and give us a boldness to stand for you. Because one day when the curtain is called, and when the time is up, and when we stand before the throne, we want to see those people that we're praying for come and to stand with us before you, God. Not in the judgment line, but in the receiving line. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.